Good morning. Normally, as we approach a Memorial Day weekend, which is next weekend, of course, what I like to do in whatever series that I'm involved with is to pause and to look at one of the great military scenes in the scriptures and to look for principles that apply to everyday life. Well, I gave some thought over the course of the Olympics that had unfolded months back as to what I might be considering And I began to think about how the flags were being unfurled during the course of the Olympics in Russia and the likes, and thought how interesting it might be to do a series, a little series, on the Battle of Gog and Magog. As I looked at these chapters, it became clear to me you can't do it in just one weekend. And so for two consecutive Sundays, what I'd like to do is to look at this battle still to take place in the future known as the Battle of Gog and Magog. And to help us, not only will we have inserts to be able to jot down thoughts as we go, but we have a political map as well in our bulletins to be able to help spot these settings and these nations that are being described. On one side, what you will find is a map that describes the time period in which Ezekiel was writing. He was in exile, of course, removed from the land of Israel under the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. But on the flip side, as you'll notice in your bulletin, there is a map, furthermore, that describes the current political uh, geographical settings today. And so you're going to want to be able to track with me as we're making our way for today and next Sunday to the book of Ezekiel. And today we're going to be looking at the 38th chapter and then next Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, we'll, we'll consider the 39th chapter and try to determine how this relates to what's taking place in this world today. So, Ezekiel, in your Older Testament, chapter 38, beginning with verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 14 so that we get our bearings. Now, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you out, and all your army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Goma and all his hordes, Beth Togarmah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a god for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples, and now dwell securely, all of them. 
You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes, and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord God, On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme, and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, and I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil, to carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dadon and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Question mark. So we're going to pause there, and we're going to prepare our hearts as we're looking at this battle still to come, and as we look at the political maps of today in front of us and with the scriptures right directly in front of your eyes, my prayer is that we'll make sense out of what's being stated here this week, next week, and have something more to say to people who are struggling with, well, why is the world in the condition that it's in, and where is all of this headed? To do that, let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, I want to thank you for each one here. College students, stand. we thank you so much for your hand of protection upon them over these months they've been studying. Bless each and every one of them in the days to come. Minister to them at their point of need as we transition into a, a different season of the year where the pace will change. What we realize at the same time is that life goes on. And the past, the present, and the future all under come under your lordship. Father, we come here with a variety of needs. Some are medical. Some are relational. Some are financial. Core issue of the hour remains and will always be until things are finalized, the spiritual, out of which all the others flow. So speak to these souls of ours today. Address us at the very core issues of who we are and what we're about. Warm these hearts, engage these minds. Shape these wheels. For again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe Rosenberg, in his book, Epicenter, begins a particular chapter with these words. A few months after the Ezekiel option was published, I was invited to the United States Capitol to meet with some of the most powerful political leaders in our country. 
They had heard about the novel and were curious about my track record for writing fiction that had an eerie way of coming true, like 9-11. They were particularly intrigued by the notion that 2,500 years ago, an ancient Hebrew prophet had been able to look down the corridors of time and see nations that were not yet born and alliances that were not yet formed. With all the events unfolding in Moscow, Tehran, and elsewhere, they wanted to know more. As I began explaining the war of Gog and Magog, and how it will profoundly affect U.S. foreign domestic policy, as well as the entire global economy, One of the leaders asked if we could go back for a minute and directly to the source. He wanted to read Ezekiel chapter 38 and better understand the prophecy itself before considering its implications. And the others readily agreed. Now, I was a bit taken aback. I had never led a Bible study for such an influential group but I appreciated the seriousness with which they took the matter. So we all pulled out copies of the scriptures, and I proceeded to read the first five verses of Ezekiel 38. And then each leader read another set of five verses until we had made it through the entire chapter. Now the questions began to flow immediately. Who is Gog? What is Magog. Why don't words such as Russia, Soviet Union, Moscow ever appear in the text? Do such words appear elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel? If not, how could I be so certain that one day the world would see headlines announcing that a dictator had risen to power in Russia, is rebuilding the Russian military, and is drafting a plan to conquer the Middle East and destroy Israel? Now, these were excellent questions they were posing and took us right to the heart of the matter. Limited time permitted me to give only brief answers on Capitol Hill, but let me now walk you through the answers in a bit more detail, and let's start where these leaders did, by examining the prophecy itself. Well, that's a nice lead-in for you and for me, isn't it? It gives us the opportunity to examine this prophecy itself. So rather than try to take a battle on one particular Sunday, we'll take two Sundays to look at what's coming and how the present and the future have a way of colliding by allowing chapter 38 today and 39 next week to connect for us the trends that are unfolding in front of our very eyes in this world. Now, We're still in our introduction, and what we want to do is to begin inching forward, where in verse 1 of this 30th chapter, you and I are informed that the word of the Lord came to me. Critically important that as a congregation, that we work with the word of the Lord. Prayers that this distinguishes us, that we're not interested in pastoral opinions, we're simply interested in in what God has said, word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. Now, Ezekiel, who is in exile right now in what would now be termed modern-day Iraq, under the auspices of the Babylonians, 
finds that this word of the Lord now has been given to him by God. And God is about to speak with regard to the future. Now, he can do that because he stands outside of time. And standing outside of time, he sees the past, the present, and the future all in the present tense. The closest analogy I can give for us who are time-bound would be, let's say, some major parade happening in, say, New York City, and you are up in one of the high-leveled buildings, and you're looking down at the parade, and you can see the beginning of the parade and the middle of the parade and the end of the parade because you have a vantage point that people down on the sidewalks do not have. The difference is you do not control the present, the past, and the future. God does. He's not merely an onlooker. He is an overseer. And so now, God oversees the events of history and can speak of the future definitively because he ordains the events of the future definitively and says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog. Now, when you look at the name, the word Gog, what you need to be aware of is that this is not so much a a personal name as it is a title, a position, such as in your Older Testament, Pharaoh, or an emperor, some form of major leader. So now he is addressing a political leader a man with an influential position. Son of man, set your face toward this one, this Gog, of the land of Magog. Now what interests me is that when you begin to look at Magog, and you try to understand what we're talking about here, we need to see how Gog fits into that description, Magog. One of the people who has done a fine job of commenting on this happened to be an incredibly adamant unbeliever by the name of Voltaire from a prior time period. He was an 18th century French philosopher. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. And he once wrote a letter to Frederick the Great, king of Germany, arguing that Christianity was, in his estimation, quote, the most ridiculous most absurd religion which has ever infected the world. But yet for some reason, and he was a student of history, he was intrigued with solving the ancient riddle of Gog and Magog. And through his own research, became convinced nearly 150 years before the rise of Russia as a world power that Magog was Russia. Quote, There is a genealogical tree of the events of the world, he wrote in the Philosophical Dictionary. And then he noted that it is incontestable that the inhabitants of Gaul and Spain are descended from Goma and that the Russians from Magog, his younger brother. Now what interests us here is that when you look at the land of Magog, it then goes on in verse 2 to say the chief prince of Meshach. In the Hebrew, chief prince is also the word rosh. We would probably uh, spell it R-O-S-H. Now, as far as we can determine, these are people of a Scythian race, of originally 
Iranian stock. And so what we're going to see as this unfolds here, that when you group together Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, you are taken back to Genesis chapter 10, where Noah's three sons are listed, Shem, Shem, and Japheth. And in verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tizras. Now, with that in mind, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, the listing of the nations standing behind this. Read on. He says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, this political leader, chief prince, in other words, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, of the line of Japheth. Japheth's descendants headed northward through the years. In verse 4, he informs God does of Ezekiel that I will turn you, Ezekiel now speaks of this Gog to come, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler, shield, wielding swords. In the time period in which Ezekiel lived, 500s B.C., they would know how the Assyrians had come in and conquered the ten tribes to the north and had removed so many of the Israelites from the land, utilizing hooks and the likes in the noses, in the ears, in the mouth, and so on. In other words, animal utensils that are typically used on a farm or an agricultural setting to move animals from one setting to another. The Assyrians' approach, of course, was to move Israelites to another setting altogether. Now, God is using similar imagery, and he expected the Israelites to know their history. Now, we see how this pulls itself together, when in verse 5, we find now that there is a coalition led by Gog, who will be involved in this attack upon the land, upon the land of Israel. Now look very carefully at what's described here and who these people are. There's, first of all, Persia. Persia, then, is modern-day Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Just think of the ans. Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Now, what was interesting about Persia then, interesting about Iran today, is that it is not Arab, Iran. Rather, it is a form of an Indo-European ethnic group, and it is connected directly to the Indo-European ethnic groups of Russia. And so what you find ethnically through the generations is that there is an ethnic connection between Iran and Russia. Furthermore, you find here that there is Kush. Kush would be modern-day Ethiopia plus Sudan. If you've been following what has been happening recently in Sudan, you know that there is a godly woman, a physician, And she is about to be sentenced to death for her faith in Jesus Christ as her Lord and as her Savior. 
Then there is put. And put would be modern-day Libya. Then there's Goma, who, if you watched Andy of Mayberry of some time past, you know is related to Goober. And then also what you see here is that there is Beth Togarma, which would be modern-day Turkey. Now what's interesting here is that this is from the uttermost parts of the north. So you want to take that political map that we have in your bulletin and now allow for yourself to find what Rosenberg calls the epicenter and go due north and try to get a sense of the bearings of this because all these from the uttermost parts of the north, all his hordes, many peoples are with you. God is saying to Gog, and this invasion is about to occur. So with this before us now, what I want to do is to draw out three considerations that will help us today as we inch forward as well into next week to understand better what is taking place in the Middle East, present as well as future. Now, first of all, I want you to join me in considering the fact that as we look to the future, we're to consider the the intentions of Israel's opponents, their motives their reasons for attacking that land. Notice how it all begins in verse 7. Be ready. This is God speaking to this political leader of the north. Keep ready, you and all your hosts, in other words, his coalition, that are assembled about you, and be a God for them. Now, when he says, be ready and keep ready, what he is saying is that they are looking for a timely moment to attack Israel. Furthermore, as we're going to see in these verses, they are looking for the most vulnerable point in time to attack Israel as this unfolds. So they're gauging what is occurring in the Middle East, and particularly the entire climate the cultural climate, the religious climate, political climate of Israel. They're ready. He says, keep ready. But notice who's in charge. It's not Gog. It's God. This is not Gog saying to his coalition, be ready, keep ready. In essence, this is God saying with regard to Gog and his coalition, be ready and keep ready. Not just you, that region you oversee, Gog, but all your hosts. In other words, from verse 5, Persia, Cush, Put, and so on and so forth. A coalition. Now in verse, in this next verse, verse 8, he says, after many days. He's answering the question, when? When will this occur? After many days, you'll be mustered. doesn't say you will muster them. No. God is sovereignly allowing for all of this now to come together. Even the way he phrases things. You will be mustered. And then to help us to understand the time period of all history, he says it's in the latter days. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, 
And then mark what occurs. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Now you and I know that before 1948, the Israelites had not received national status, nationhood. But upon the edict of 1948, Israel was declared a nation. And then Jews from all various settings around the globe began to descend upon Israel. Notice the wording here, that you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples. And so now there's this migration back to this small little real estate on the global map, you see. It's fascinating what is being described here. You don't see such migrations of other ethnic groups from the historic time periods that Ezekiel writes. No other nation regained national status. If you're talking to anybody who's able to track world events, present this, this in and of itself should be spiritually convicting that they want to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and as their Savior. When they understand the sovereignty of a God who could, after all these centuries, bring this into being, the same God who could raise his son Jesus Christ from the dead. You see the sovereignty of God in these verses unfolding in front of your very eyes. So we're inching through this. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go. Go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Now, he tells us that its people were brought out from the peoples, which means from all the various other nations. But there seems to be almost a letting down of the God. Maybe they have a pacifistic prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu right now is fully aware of the threats that occur to Israel. But who knows who will be leading in the future? And so the God, so to speak, has been let down. There's this sense of dwelling securely. At that point, then... We are told you will advance. And notice the imagery coming on like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your hordes. And to make certain that we understand this is a coalition of nations. And many peoples, many peoples, with you. So now, what you and I see here as we're looking at these verses is that there's a, an incredible threat unfolding. Now, when we look at this real estate known as Israel, we look back at prior threats, all of which are, in essence, installments of what is still to come. For example, in 1967, several weeks before the War of 67, Egypt issued a postage stamp showing their leader, Nasser, with a map of Israel in flames. 
at his right hand. What's also interesting to me is that before the fighting in 1967 started, there was a coalition against Israel that Radio and Cairo announced, quote, Our people have been waiting 20 years for this battle. Now they will teach Israel the lesson of death. Now Nasser went on the radio to say that any war with Israel would be, quote, total, and the objective will be to destroy Israel, unquote. And a Syrian army commander predicted Israel's destruction in four days. So Israel was hedged in on three sides and outnumbered 20 to 1, yet 1. Now again, what you see here is a sovereign plan unfolding. Again and again and again you would say that there's really no basis, so it seems, for existence today. Yet there it is. It should get people to start thinking and rethinking their assumptions about the role of God in this world and what he's doing. So verse 7 through 9 tells us something with regards to when this invasion occurs. It's in the latter days. In verse 10 through 13, it informs us as to why this invasion occurs when we find, thus says the Lord God standing before us, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind. Now, he's speaking at this point of those that stand in opposition to the Israelis. Thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. So I was looking at what is occurring in recent days in the Middle East because uh, daily I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get on the websites of the various newspapers of Israel and Egypt and elsewhere. The terrorist group Islamic Jihad has warned Israelis in a Hebrew language video, quote, get out of our country, unquote, meaning all of Israel. The warning came after terrorists fired more than 60 rockets into southern Israel in a single day in March, which was the worst barrage since 2012. Whenever you see the IDF, it's an acronym for the Israeli Defense Forces. It's bracing for the potential of a larger-scale military operation, and of course they're watching Iran. And in response to the attacks, the Israeli Air Force struck 29 terrorist targets in Gaza. In the video, a man dressed in black warned the terrorist Zionist government, quote-unquote, to show restraint if it wants his group to stop firing rockets. And then he addressed the cowardly Zionist army, quote-unquote. We in the brigades, speaking of the Islamic Jihad military wing, are ready for your invasion, and if you come, you will have no choice, death or captivity. Do not hand over your lives as hostages. We invite you to leave our country and to find your own country, quote, unquote. So now, you and I are fascinated by why is everybody so covetous 
about this little bit of real estate on the globe. What is it that is such a magnetic attraction? Everybody seems to have singular focus. There's the Dome of the Rock. There's the temple that plans are being made to reconstruct. There's the historic tensions unfolding. And here is God, 500 plus B.C., saying, On that day... Thoughts will come into your mind. You'll devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people. In other words, they have been lulled into contentment, who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. To seize spoil, here's now the motive. To seize spoil and carry off plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the peoples who were gathered from the nations. Who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center, you see, of the earth. In 1949, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion, Div Ben-Gurion, said that Israel's policy was, quote, consists of bringing all Jews to Israel, and we are still at the beginning. Unquote. And yet, what we find here is that there has been a lack of peace in the city of peace, Jerusalem. King Faisal had said this in front of President Nixon years ago, quote, There will never be a real and lasting peace in the area unless Jerusalem is liberated and returned to Arab sovereignty, unless liberation of all the occupied Arab territories is achieved, and unless the Arab people of Palestine regain their rights to return to their homes and be given the right of self-determination. Unquote. Well, Ezekiel is basically speaking of these things. David Ben-Gurion had spoken of the regathering of the people in 1949. And here now, Ezekiel, who is exiled from his homeland, is not only speaking of his own personal return, he is speaking of that global return still to come that God ordained in 48. To turn your hand now, speaking of these peoples against Israel, against the waste places that are now inhabited, the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. And then he goes on, interestingly enough, to say Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Now, with your modern-day political map, if you look very carefully at that peninsula like a boot that sticks out, you see, into the sea, what you're going to find here is that when you are looking very carefully at Sheba in verse 13, Dedan, that is the Arabian Peninsula. And furthermore, where it speaks of the merchants of Tarsh, well, that speaks of modern-day southern Spain. Have you come to seize spoil? 
Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? In other words, what's happening now is that there is a global conversation as people are trying to understand the motivations behind what's unfolding. What is the reason for this invasion? Political leaders are asking one another as they're trying to determine how to respond to this growing global calamity. So now, in verse 7 through 13 is your first consideration. So we look into the future, consider the intentions of Israel's opponents, verse 7 down through verse 13. But secondly, as we look to the future, consider the movements of Israel's opponents, verse 14 down through verse 16. Now, there's, there's Ezekiel. He's far from home. He's longing for a homecoming. He's longing for a regathering of his people in this setting that he loves. And now he's speaking of that day that even he himself cannot fully comprehend, most likely. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel, isn't that interesting? That God speaks of them as my people. My people Israel. On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, Will you not know it? In other words, the political scene seems ripe now for this form of invasion. So now, in verse 15 comes one of what I consider to be the critical verses in this chapter. You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. So with your map in front of you now, the modern-day map, allow yourself once again to be able to locate that little bit of real estate that seems to be so continually contested, Israel, and then start going due north to the uttermost parts northward, and you can see where this leads you. And then you are better able to comprehend now the scope geographically, militarily, of what we are looking at as this one who has this title, Gog, has now marshaled this coalition that is found in verse 5. And God, G-O-D, says, you will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you. Now, he uses the military terminology of the time period of Ezekiel because that's what Ezekiel could comprehend, riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. And in the latter days, I will bring you against my land. Notice that it's not the Jews' land. Notice that it's not the Arabs' land. Notice that it's not Islamic land. Notice it is God's land, which makes this such a crucial, critical issue when you watch and observe the news as people debate the whole Palestinian issue. 
mark it very clearly, I will bring you against my land. Why? Why would God do this? Here is your answer. You're in verse 16. That the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, this is an evangelistic opportunity. It's an evangelistic moment for people so spiritually aroused by what's happening globally. And the purpose of this is that people will know God. That's why, evangelistically, we talk about, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not abstractly, not merely religiously, not informationally, but do you have this personal relationship with God? Because the Hebrew word for know is an intimate word used to describe the physical relationship of a man and woman in marriage. It is the same word that God used for Moses to confront Pharaoh in the days of captivity for the Israelites in the land of Egypt, where in Exodus chapter 9, Moses was to say this to the Pharaoh then, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In verse 16 of Exodus 9, But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So in other words, now you have a tremendous opportunity to look at the Middle East evangelistically and be able to explain where all of this heads, where all of this leads, that God is sovereign, God had promised this. How do you explain 1948 without talking about God? How do you explain nationhood without talking about God? Outside the fact that you have a sovereign God that ordained the regathering of these people. So now we take all these things seriously. And so while... I was watching the Olympics. I had Ezekiel 38 open. And I was processing the whole relational dynamics that were unfolding in front of our very eyes. Well, at the same time, weeks later, the world was a bit caught off guard by what was happening in the Ukraine. And then I pondered, didn't you, leaflets being placed upon placed in the hands of Jewish people, informing them that they were to leave that section of the Ukraine? Have you pondered the significance of all these matters and not allowed for them to simply function in isolation from one another? But rather, you have wisely made connections historically and politically, globally and personally. 
as to how all this is unfolding under the auspices of a under the auspices of a sovereign God. I love what Goto Maia, who who lived in Milwaukee, and then eventually became Prime Minister of Israel, when she said, quote, We Jews have a secret weapon in our struggle. We have no place to go. Unquote. Now, what this means then is that you and I have got to be watching, observing. He answers the where question, verse 14 15, the latter days, uttermost parts, the when question, latter days, the why question, that the nations may know. Now, you have considered the intentions in verse 7 through 13. You've considered the movements unfolding and from where, from when, and what about why in verses 14 through 16. Now, thirdly, I want you to consider with me the judgment upon Israel's opponents in verse 17 through 23. Start with verse 17. Because here we read, thus says the Lord God, Still concerned with the word of God. Question. Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? Stop right there. Notice that mercy precedes justice here. Never break down God's approach to things that there's all mercy and no justice. Never break down things to argue that it's all justice and no mercy. Notice how God patiently through the generations delivered prophet after prophet after prophet to stir the hearts of people to truly personally know God through Messiah who was to come. But hearts were hardened in the midst of this time of mercy. In fact, if you look right now, I'm struck, and aren't you, by the number of people that are still agnostic, if not atheistic, towards these matters. That it's as if now the sand is in the hourglass coming to a close. So that in verse 18, not only do you see the mercy of God in verse 17, Now you see the justice of God in 18 down through 22, where we are informed, but on that day. The day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God. My wrath will be roused in my anger. You say, how can God be this way? If you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, There is both mercy and justice. Mercy for the one who repents of his sins and justice for the one who resists repentance. Two sides of the same coin in that definitive work of God through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. They are not contradictory, justice and mercy. They are complementary. They're to be connected. Now here's Ezekiel, and he's connecting mercy in verse 17 with justice in 18. 
on that day, as the sands are slowly but surely coming to an end in that hourglass of time, the day that Gog shall come up against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Sometime do a topographical analysis of the landscape of Israel itself. Try to picture how this would unfold. And there's a tremendous environmental emphasis here at verse 20. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, you see, the beasts of the fields and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, the cliffs shall fall away, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. And I will summon a sword against Israel? No. I will summon a sword against Gog on my mountains. Now notice and look topographically with your map at some point in time in the coming days at the mountainous regions just to the north. Every man's sword will be against his brother. In other words, the coalition breaks down, much as in the days of Gideon, where the Midianites turned on one another in the book of Judges. Likewise, if you see, for example, the Iranian Persia, verse 5, interesting that Persia is the very first nation represented, the ethnic group in verse 5, is part of this coalition with Gog's Magog, which could very well then be the Russian grouping, that what you have here is the Indo-European connection of Iran and Russia. Now we're speculating at this point. But you and I know, because we've done series on Sunday nights in our Christian Perspective series on Islam in relationship to the Middle East, that there are tremendous tensions between Sunnis and Shiites. Iran is not Arab, but, for example, Iraq or Saudi Arabia is. Could the coalition begin to break down because Saudi Arabia looks at Iran and Iran looks at Saudi Arabia and they feel threatened by one another's assertiveness in the Middle East? We're only asking questions at this point. But he says every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstorms, fire and sulfur. So now, what God has done, even ecologically, is to get the attention of peoples globally. And what he has done is he's moved you from the mercy of God in verse 17 into the justice of God in verse 18 through 22 to the greatness and the holiness of God in verse 23. And you ask again, and what is the reason of all this? So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known. It's an evangelistic word in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know I am the Lord. The funeral of Louis XIV cathedral was packed with mourners paying their final tribute to their king, who liked to be called the greatest. 
And the room was dark except for one lone candle that illumined the, the casket that held the remains of their leader. At the appointed time, the court pastor stood to address the assembled clergy of France. And as he rose, history tells us, he reached from the pulpit, snuffed out the one candle which had been put there to symbolize the singular greatness of the king. And then from the darkness came just four words. God only is great, of which we know, because Christ's tomb is empty, and the sovereign one who can raise Christ from the dead is the sovereign one who can bring all this to pass, to be continued. As the worship team comes forward, let's look to our Lord in prayer. thanking you, Father, and praising you for the fact that you allow us to get beyond ourselves and to see what you are doing globally and how the past, the present, and the future all come together in a way that brings honor and glory to your name and how we can see how ethnic groups are aligned with one another, how coalitions could naturally be brought together, but it's all under your sovereign workings, according to your sovereign purpose and all for your sovereign glory. So thank you, Father, for what you are teaching us, that we can take these principles and for people that have such uneasy hearts about where the world is at today, we can draw their attention to the fact that all this is meant that we would know you, Jesus, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.